Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone from the band Alcatraz, it is uh, Jimmy Waldo. The band is back with a new album called Born Innocent. Now, I will be uh, upfront and honest. The uh, interview dates from June of 2020, so I'm a little late getting it up. But, as we say, better late than never. And, on, of course, on the phone, it is uh, the one and only Le Seul Unique Alan Niven. Bonjour, Alain. Bonjour, monsieur. Yes. So, um, well, a couple of things here before we we get into uh, Jimmy Waldo. I I have to read you this this fan email I got the other day. It it is absolutely fantastic. So, we, we did this interview or show or performance, whatever you want to call it, of this 2001 Bon Jovi interview and I told you the entire story about how the record company promised me an interview, and then they gave me a CD with a cue sheet that had questions, and uh, track one, track two, track three had answers. And so we, we put it up, and we there, there was no chicanery or, or any kind of hidden agenda there. We, we said what it was, but then I got you. I got this email, and I, and I want you to respond to this. Um, it says, uh, from a fan who sent it to me on Facebook, it said, Can I ask, if you're a Bon Jovi fan, which you claim to be, why would you put out an interview from 2001 and just take the piss? Now, now before I get any further, first of all, in 2001, when I drove three hours from my home to Ottawa to go interview Bon Jovi after I was promised an interview, and then they hand me a CD, really... Who's taking a piss on who? But anyway, whatever. It says, let me continue. I love most of your stuff you put out, but I thought that this was uncalled for. Really? Uncalled for? Putting out an old interview and actually laying out the entire premise as to why we were doing it is uncalled for? Okay. And it says, let me, especially, especially letting that prick... Alan Niven be involved, who is clearly hates the band and has a massive chip on his shoulder about John. Now, first of all, uh, Alan is not a prick, and I don't think he has a chip on his shoulder about John. But now, I will turn the floor over to you, Alan, and I'm, I'm going to keep the uh, the person's name off the, off the record because I'm not here to uh, you know do that. But uh, Alan, first of all, do you have a chip on your shoulder? I no, of course I don't have a chip on my <laughs> shoulder about Bon Jovi. Um, I do love my fan mail, um, but anyway, as, as regards, if I have a point of view about John, uh, it's based on one thing and one thing alone, and that is the fact that he coerced. Uh, I think it was fifty percent of the publishing income out of Skid Row in order that they may um, benefit from being taken out as a support band. And if anyone is a prick, then I would say a person who would do that and exercise that kind of coercion and exercise that kind of greed, that they might be considered a bit of a prick. Um, I think it's totally unconscionable to do that um 
somebody said to me, oh, well, you know, Skid Row agreed to it. I don't know who was managing Skid Row at the time, but if I were, that would never have happened. And on top of that, I would suggest Skid Row were young, excited, and had no experience of the significance of publishing income for an awful lot of bands. That was all that they saw because they good luck trying to get paid royalties out of a record company that is looking to charge back everything they can. Um, just, just to give you a little snapshot, there were two things to me about publishing. First of all, internally within a band, I encouraged those that I had to advise that they would credit whoever wrote the song, but that they shared all income. And if a non-composer, non-writer left the band, then they would lose the privilege of sharing in that income. Because there were two things that I was aware of. Uh, bands tend to implode and fall apart fighting over disparity in publishing income and fighting over girlfriends and wives. Um, the latter I couldn't do that much about, but I could do something about the publishing situation. Uh, and pub publishing is absolutely a, an essential um, money stream for any band, especially one that's trying to get on its feet. Um, Guns N' Roses came to me and said, Niv, we want to do a publishing deal. And I sat them down and I said, listen, fuckers, how long have you been eating shit? Well, you know, we've been eating shit all our lives. Fine. Then I want you to eat shit for another six months. And at the end of that six months, retain at least 25% or maybe even 50% of your publishing income. Form your own publishing company and make sure all the publishing company comes to you in perpetuity because it's just a form of usury. And when you're young and you're signed and there's not much money left over after you've made the record, you look around and go, well, I'm signed. I'd like a new car. Let's get a publishing deal. Wrong, bad mistake. You need to retain your publishing copyrights. It is absolutely essential. So for another artist to come along and take, I think it was 50% of Skid Row's publishing, just as they could open up for them, that I think is unconscionable. And if I have an attitude to Bon Jovi, it's just, if I think of that, I think that that was a rotten thing to do and a greedy thing to do. So there's my point of view on Bon Jovi. There's your point of view. And and I'll ask you this. I have heard, and it might be just a rumor, it might be completely false. I don't know. I am not speaking this as fact. But I heard, or I've heard over the years, that uh, Bon Jovi also did the same thing to Cinderella. Are you able to speak to that at all? Are you aware of, of that being done I, to, to Chicken Curry or Fred Curry, as we call him? Um, do you know? No, I, I have no knowledge of that. Okay, and, and neither I do I. So we'll, we'll throw that into the, into the rumor bin and we'll leave it at that because we don't want to get uh, anybody in trouble. Um, the, the other thing that, that I find here is uh, the, the writer of the email says that we took a piss on Bon Jovi. I, I don't think so. I think if we had 
not done the preamble, not set out what it was and why it was and how it happened and and why we're doing this now, maybe perhaps, but but for for 15 minutes before we actually got to the interview, we were exceptionally clear. And then on top of that, we were even clearer. I mean... <laughs> we, oh, on, on, on top of that, it was just silliness. We were just playing a Python-esque take on it. Yes. Have you ever have you ever heard some of these morning shows, savage artists and yeah. young artists, and old artists and new artists? We didn't savage anybody. We just slightly poked the bear for doing something that was, I think, inauthentic and arrogant. Yeah, you, you see- don't do that to somebody. You know, we explained this at the time. Pick who you want to talk to. Make sure that there's somebody that you feel is genuinely empathetic and have a genuine conversation. To hand out a list of questions or pre-recorded answers is not an interview. It's an insult. Yeah, you know, and and I don't even go that far in my in my whatever condemnation of it. I actually think, looking back, you know, uh, 19 years later, that it's kind of funny on a very sort of fluffy comedy central kind of funny you know of 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 a pre-recorded interview and and listen there was a historic documentation on those answers and so we got them out but to present it as an authentic 2001 interview would have been even worse so to to you know frame it the way we did in in a kind of a funny way but still let the fan have the actual documented answers because we played the we played the tracks in full some of the answers were only like 24 seconds but that's not me we didn't edit anything we I played it as it was recorded and even the sound of the recording I love because the record company had gone to the extreme of making it sound like you were in a cavernous backstage area and you could hear some 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 sniffling and some coughing and like they really made it they tried to make it sound authentic, like, hey, it's um, Mitchell Vaughn backstage with Bon Jovi at the Bell Center in Montreal. How's it going? Like, it really, they really wanted it to be that. So, I don't know. I, I, listen, I thought it was a fun episode. I have nothing wrong with it. I, I, I disagree with um, that email, but listen, it's your point of view. Your point of view. Fine. I, I, think, I think it misses the point as, as to what we were trying to do, but okay. Hmm. Say la vie. Um... Oh, and just re- real quick, you you talked about the publishing, uh, and you you were very wise in doing what you did with Guns N' Roses because I heard from a lot of bands, and I think this is one of the problems with Rat, if I'm not mistaken, was that you would have the principal songwriter driving around in a Porsche or a Lamborghini with a pool and three houses, and the drummer who was there and participated in making the music, the guitarist who was there and participating in making the music, are still be, still living out of a one-bedroom apartment, driving a beaten-up old Honda with rust on the side. And that happened to many, many bands over the years. And I could see at some point while, you know, you're, you're whatever, playing Giant Stadium and your lead singer has four houses and, and, and a, you know, an estate in the Caribbean, and you're driving around a, a used Honda, you might go, well, fuck him. I'm out of this. This is not, you know? So did you ever see that, it, by the way, those it, extremes? Well, yes. And it completely undermines the sense of one for all and all for one 
brotherhood and the persistence that you needed to survive and prevail and eventually come to notice was heavily dependent on that sense of brotherhood. So a lot of my decisions were through the prism of, does this work for a sense of brotherhood or does it not? And, you know, it would have been easy to go, oh, Axel, you're the most difficult person to deal with. So why don't I placate you by making sure that you get the lion's share of the money? Um, That to me was anathema. You know, a band is a band is a band and hold it together. And there should be a sense of equality about it. Um, And of course, you know, when a band dissolves and they hang it up, then those composers get full benefit. And those who leave the circumstance no no longer have the privilege of the share. But I think if you're in it with everybody, you share. You know, it's it's a sense of uh, respect to those who play behind you or play with you. And you try and hold it together and you try and hold that vibe together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I, I know people out there who, who know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got one guy who, who's got all the gold and you've got other people that have to go shop at the thrift store. And you're like, wait a minute. We're on the same album. It's the same Billboard chart. It's the you know it's the same Long Beach Arena or or you know, Staples Center or whatever it was back before him. And that, you go and that individual and that individual Mitch mm-hmm. made the same commitment. Yes, everybody's making that commitment and everybody's taking that chance. So it just made sense to me. Yeah, and and um. I also say that it sort of takes all five parts to, to, to or four parts or whatever to make a song. It, it's nice that a guy wrote a lyric and he said, I have a riff. But at some point, you know, the keyboard player said, OK, well, how about this? And the drummer said, well, how about that? And the the, the bass player, you know, the, the, the song is, is all the parts to me. It's not just one guy who had an idea. Oh, I wrote a great lyric. Well, great. But that great lyric without this great music is just a lyric. So anyway, anyway, uh, let us get on over to a Jimmy Waldo. This uh, interview is from June 2020. And of course, it is Alcatraz. Uh, well, he's talking about the new Alcatraz album, Born Innocent, which, which, by the way, if you go online and look at the reviews, I'm seeing four on fives. I'm seeing eight on tens. I'm seeing nine on tens. It's a great album. Go check out Born Innocent and here is Jimmy Waldo. We are speaking with Jimmy Waldo of the band Alcatraz, the new album, Born Innocent, coming out later this summer. And uh, as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Jimmy, how are you? I'm fine. I'm great. And hello to Montreal. Yes. Uh, One of my favorite cities, uh, for real. I love Montreal. Yes, it's a it's a great city, especially once we get it all open and we get concerts and stuff going on. But uh, let me just quickly, uh, before we get into Alcatraz, you, okay. along with Gary Shea uh, and Hirsch, and of course John, were the first band I ever saw live. On August 6, 1979, I went out to the Montreal Forum, home of 24 Stanley Cup champions, 
the Montreal Canadiens. You always have to throw that in there because somebody in Toronto will say, shut up, Mitch, shut up. But uh, I, have a, I have a funny story. When we get done with this answer, I'll tell you a funny story about that. I'm looking forward to it. But, I, but okay. you know, I went out to see Kiss on the Dynasty tour. Like a lot of us that are, you know, past 40, we went to see Kiss on the Dynasty tour. That was the one to go see. But of course, right. New England right. with you and Gary mm-hmm. opened up. So de facto, you were the first band I ever saw. So just real quick, uh, how was that tour for you? And and uh, you know how how exciting is it to have opened on that that Kiss tour that has become so memorable for so many fans? Um, that that tour was amazing for us. Uh, Kiss. Well, we had Bill O'Coin managed both of us, and Paul had co-produced our first record. So Paul Stanley. So uh, that was a real comfortable fit for us. And uh, Kiss couldn't have. They treated us great. The crews were really cool. Uh, it was just. It couldn't have been better, and it couldn't have been more fun. And walking out on that, I think our first show was in Atlanta. I think we started that tour in Atlanta with Kiss. Uh, I just remember that first show walking out on that stage and not really knowing how well New England was doing. And um, the place was full, which is highly unusual for an opening act. Usually you walk on, if it's 20,000 people, you maybe got 10 in there, you know. Uh, The place was full and people had uh, banners New England banners with our pictures drawn on them. And we love New England and all this stuff right down in the front row. So I, we were freaking out. We were looking at each other on stage pointing because we'd never, this was all new to us playing gigs like that. So yeah, that, that tour with kiss was unbelievable. And uh, like I said, kiss treated us just great. We were friends. So that went, it just went amazing. And yeah. Montreal, I'll never forget Montreal. There was about, uh, and no offense to the people in Toronto, uh, that was a really good gig. Um, all the KISS shows were good shows. But Montreal, New York City, um, and uh, Portsmouth, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I think it is, wherever that big venue is, uh, oh my, and Washington, D.C., those shows were, um, I mean, the, the crowd was deafening. It was just unbelievable. Montreal was especially cool. Um, we were doing really well on the radio there. So we got, we were getting a shitload of airplay. And um, so there was a lot of it. We got a lot of attention before and after the show. And uh, the record company did a special uh, thing where, you know, uh, listeners could win a, uh, a hang with us. They could come back in the dressing room and hang out with it. They got to go to the show. They got tickets to the show and then they could come hang out with us. And then, uh, one of them, we would take them home in a limousine. So I was elected. So I took these two people, this girl and her boyfriend, uh, I rode with them in a limo, like 40 miles outside of Montreal. And then went to their house. And it was so cool. I, I just, it was so much fun. We were all having some beers in the back of the limo and uh, went to their house, met their parents, hung out there for about an hour. I think I got back to the hotel about five o'clock 
in the morning. But um, what I was going to tell you about the, the Montreal Forum, speaking of hockey, was um, I, I, I was taking pictures on the road. I mean, I took pictures of everything. And uh, I was at the Forum during the sound check. Uh, during Kiss's sound, we'd finished our sound check and I went out front and was just walking around the, the arena and uh, Kiss was doing their sound check. So I had my camera. So Kiss, it was a makeup tour, so they didn't have any makeup on during the sound check. So I, w- I went up in the very, very back of the arena as far as you could get, as high as you could get, to take pictures of the hockey banners. Because all my friends in Boston were big hockey fans, and they thought the Bruins owned it, you know. And so, been to Boston Garden, the Bruins got probably half the amount of, maybe half the amount of banners that, that Montreal's got. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them shit, you know, I'll, I'll just be a bad guy. And I'm going to take pictures of all these banners, and I had some amazing shots. The, the seat that I was picking up there, where I got it, I got the perfect shot of the Montreal Forum banners. I mean, you, this could have been a National Geographic picture. And I was really thrilled. About this time, Kiss stops playing, and Gene Simmons, over the microphone, yells at me. He goes, Jimmy, what are you doing? And I'm like, at the other end of the forum. And I, I go, what do you mean? I yell, you know. And he says, come here. You know better than that. And I said, then what? And I, so I'm going down. He calls me up to the stage. And his bodyguard, who was a friend of mine, Eddie Blandis, was a, was a friend. <laughs> Eddie comes at me with his eyes rolling like, oh, God, I can't believe this. Gene says, give him your camera. You were taking pictures of us from up there without our makeup. And I said, no, you guys weren't even in the picture. I said, I was taking pictures of the hockey banners. And Gene, Gene shakes his finger at me like, no, no, no. And I said, oh, man. I said, Gene, please, I've got a lot of personal pictures on here. I, I really don't No, Eddie, take the film out of the camera. So they confiscated the film out of my camera. And uh, oh, man. I didn't get my hockey I didn't get my hockey banner picture. So I gave Gene shit about that for the rest of the tour. Every time I'd see him, I'd go, do I get my film back now? I said, did you guys develop it? And Gene just laughed. He goes, no, we threw it away. What are you talking about? And I said, there was a lot of personal family pictures on there, which was a lie. But I wanted my damn hockey banner pictures. And so that was one story. The other story was I was so excited. We came out to do the sound check. And I was so excited. I came out of the dressing room uh, and I went running to the back of the stage and there was ice. They had the ice down. So back there, there was still ice. So there were boardwalks, wooden boardwalks that you're supposed to stay on the boardwalks because there's ice. And the boardwalks were chewed to shit from the hockey players coming out in their skates. So I was running down the boardwalks, and I went to take a shortcut across the ice. I wasn't even thinking. I hit the ice. I fell on my ass and slid about 50 feet across the ice. And I thought, how cool is I didn't get hurt. So I thought, how cool is that? I, I fell on my ass on the ice at the Montreal Forum. That's the greatest. I just, you know, that, that, so that's great memories for me of Montreal. And then we went out that the next night, or the 
was the night before the next night, we went to some bars and it's like being in Europe. And I was amazed at how friendly everybody was and loose everything was. People are just like coming, going out of these bars, not, there's nobody at the door, like busting you about anything. It's just very, very friendly, loose atmosphere. So we go in this one bar and people are smoking hash and I blew our minds. It's like people are sitting at tables, drinking, smoking hash. I don't know if you remember that or not, but in those days, but oh my God, I mean, it was, it was just a whole nother world for us. Montreal is a very interesting place. Now, no, no, at that time I was like 10 or 11 years old, so I wasn't at the bars, but, but it was, uh, Montreal, I've always said, and Quebec in general, I've always said, it's sort of the last of the wild frontier. We, we get away with a lot of stuff that we wouldn't get away with in other cities, and yet we're still very nice, and we're still very civilized, and we're still just having a whole lot of fun. But uh, let us get over to the the new album because it is uh, okay. It is, of course, uh, um, the first uh, "Born Innocent" is the name of it. It is the first one in thirty four years. So, talk to me about getting the guys back together, get, getting Gary and Graham and yourself, and saying, okay. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this. We're not just going to go tour the club scene and, and, and play the old hits. Let's give the fans new music and let's just do it proper. Um, talk about, about that decision to, to, to do it proper and not just rely on three albums years ago. Well, uh, Graham and I, I'd been touring with Graham in the Graham Bonnet Band, um, which was Graham and myself and the drummer that we have now. But Bethany on bass and uh, other guitar players. We went through three guitar players, <clears throat> and uh, I won't mention any names. But and I was frustrated. Graham was frustrated, and we both looked at each other. And our manager suggested, Giles Lavery suggested, "Hey, you know what, guys? We should do Alcatraz. Forget this." And Graham, like, "Yeah, yeah, I, I would. Let's do it." And I was thrilled. So. That's when we decided, and, and Bethany had to leave because of her children and family stuff. She, her, her parents are not doing well, and she's got two kids that are getting older and, and real handful. So Bethany wanted to leave anyway; couldn't tour anymore. So, um, and we were getting a guitar, we were going to get a guitar play, a new guitar player. So we thought that's the time to change gears, and that's what we did. We just stopped everything and started writing for a new record to be Alcatraz and looking for a guitar player. And that's when we found Joe Stump. But in the meantime, we did use some guys on the album that had been in our past, in Graham's past and my past, and Blackthorn with Bob Kulik played on, uh, co-wrote and played two songs. And uh, Joe Stump uh, played on everything. But, um, yeah, and Steve Vai wrote a piece, and Joe played on that, and and so on. Um, but, yeah, we just thought, you know, the Graham thing just didn't feel, we were doing some Alcatraz material, but it wasn't right. It, the guitar players couldn't play it. It just wasn't right. The band wasn't playing it right. So Graham and I, from a musical standpoint, thought, you know, if we're going to do this stuff, 
we need to get a guitar player that can really do it justice. And Joe Stump is the guy. Joe kills it. So, um, well, it's not easy Gary, to replace Ingve uh, Momstein and, and Steve I. I mean, no. you, you you can't just be some no. chump off the off the side of the street. So, so no. Uh, uh, but no. it's interesting, by the way, because uh, you know the Graham Bonnet band had a couple of good releases, and then of course I saw Graham last year. Was it last year or two years ago when he did the Michael Schenker tour in uh-huh. uh, in Mon- mm-hmm. which was fantastic? By the way, what a great night of rock and roll right. that was. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But but yeah. you do have this brand name, and people hate it when you say brand instead of band, but you've got this brand name, and why not use it? I mean, people will unfortunately remember the name Alcatraz maybe more than Graham Bonnet Band, and that's not to be disparaging, but why not no, use no, no. it? You know, you, you use it, and I'm glad you're using it. Well, yeah, and, and we thought the same thing. That was one of the thoughts. Our manager said, guys... No offense to Graham and I and Giles and Mark, the drummer, sat all together and talked about exactly that. And Giles said, you know, we've been touring now, a lot of touring as the Graham Bonnet Band. And he goes, I think we will do better numbers at the door if we call it Alcatraz. He goes, that's number one. 110% correct. I know Giles, by the way, and and he's right. And he's right. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a <laughs> there was a pretty remarkable change. Also, attitude. People, we got on festivals that we couldn't get on before, and um, well, the band was heavier. So, uh, and and that's what I wanted more than anything. I wanted to be heavier. So I knew a new Alcatraz playing that older material. It would be heavier than it was then. And uh, I mean, I love Ingve and Ingve incredible i mean forget it but what we were doing was heavier than the original alcatraz was so uh joe stump is more of a a metal guy and uh nails the ingve stuff plays that stuff in his sleep um so that's one of his favorite people in the world is ingve so that just worked out perfect but yeah, the brand, you're absolutely right. The brand is the whole thing. And that, that's, that took us to a whole other level really quick. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you've got the same guys standing on stage and it's out front, you've got double the audience. I mean, and that's just because of the name. I mean, that's, that's how easy yeah. it is, right? Yeah. Um, but okay, but, yeah. Talk, yeah. but talk to me just real quick about making new music because you could, of course, just put the name. We know the brand has power. And you could say, hey, we've got these three albums and we're going to come out and we're going to play the best 15 songs from these three albums. We'll do 75 minutes. Merci, bonsoir. We're going home. And then somewhere along the line, somebody said, no, 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 no. We've got to come up with at least 10 new tracks. Um, so so are these like leftovers from back then? Did, did you have a writing session? Oh, no. Okay, so these are brand, brand new. Oh, no. And how oh, do you... this was all brand... Yeah, we, when we said that, when we said okay we're gonna this is gonna be we're gonna do alcatraz we're gonna get a guitar player we wanted to get rid of the guy we had anyway so we we were like when we get a new guy now we're really gonna get a guy that's the right guy and we're gonna start writing and that's what we did it started all from scratch so the songs that the other people were involved in other writers uh those were all written with alcatraz in mind for alcatraz and with myself co-writing or uh, I produced the record. So um, Giles and I and 
so yeah, everything was, it was about Alcatraz. <laughs> and so when these guys were writing like Dario Molo in Italy, he and I would Skype for hours and talk about it. And he knew all about Steve Vai and Ingve, so he gets it. Dario gets it immediately. So when he and I talked about it, I said, no offense, Dario. I said, I love you. You're an amazing guy. I love your material, but this is Alcatraz. So think Alcatraz, think Alcatraz. And that's the way it was. Bob Kulik, same thing. Um, Steve Vai, we wanted what Steve would do as Steve. So I didn't have to say anything to Steve. He knew what it was all about. We talked about it. And uh, and the guy, uh, Nazumo Wakai in Japan, he's a huge Alcatraz fan. And um, the piece he wrote was right up our alley. It was just perfect. So it kind of, it worked out. And Chris and Pelletieri, that goes without saying. Chris had auditioned for Alcatraz, you know, in the beginning with Steve Vai and uh, Chris and I have been friends forever and Chris knows what we're all about. And Graham had done two records with Chris. So it all made sense. It, it, it did. So, so you've got, of course, you know, no parole, you've got disturbing, you've got dangerous. So when you come to born innocent, do you say to yourself, okay, we need to sound like 1983, 85, you know, do we have to sound like that Alcatraz or do you have some, freedom to say, well, okay, we need to, of course, have something in common with the old Alcatraz, but we also got to make it new for 2020. We can't just, you know, cook up a recipe. Well, we thought, we knew that, I felt with Joe Stump playing guitar and myself playing keyboards and Gary playing bass and Graham singing, no matter what we did, it was going to, it was going to be very reminiscent of that first record. I, and we just kind of went on that premise that we're going to be okay. We don't really have to think about it too hard, that it'll be okay. And um, especially with Joe, because Joe is right there. Uh, with Inve, Richie Blackmore, school, you know, and the stuff that I wrote, Joe just took right to. So it's all coming from most of the same guys. Uh, and then Joe being that kind of guitar player. So we didn't really have to think about it, to be honest with you. I mean, certainly it was talked about. We go, well, that's, that kind of sounds like it could have come off of uh, no parole. And uh, we kind of laugh and just move on. We didn't really spend too much time dwelling on it, put it that way. Yeah. Um, just real quick. I, I know you mentioned Bob Kulik. Bob, Bob and I spoke uh, before his passing almost every day for six months. We were on the phone uh, sometimes two, three hours a night. Um, devastating loss for me to, to, to have Bob pass away. Uh, any memories of Bob or anything you want to just say about him? Because, um, man, I, it was so unexpected. It, 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 man, it was it was tough for me. It's still tough for me, I must say. Yeah, uh, I felt really bad, and a lot of great, great memories with Bob musically. Um, Bob and I clicked. Writing songs together for us was easy. Rehearsing was easy. Uh, producing the songs in the studio was easy. I mean, Bob and I just clicked. You know, it was a, he was a good guy to work with, a real pro, great guitar player and a real professional, real stickler for being a professional. So um, 
that's my fondest memories. And then uh, writing with Bob was fun because there was no bullshit. Bob and I would write a song and it'd be like he had I don't know, he had a riff or I had a riff and uh, it would just take off. It would just like no problem. I mean, we would write the bulk, the the basics of a song would come out of us in 20 minutes. Like the old days when you hear about, you know, the Bee Gees would talk about some of their biggest hits they wrote in 20 minutes. And I used to think that was like supernatural, but it's not. That's kind of a real natural thing. If you're both on the same page and there's no egos involved, stuff comes out pretty quick, you know. Beatles songs, I've heard McCartney say that. They they may work on a song for a week, but the initial song happened in 20 minutes or a half hour. So Bob was that guy. We, he and I could get together anywhere, anytime and write a song. <laughs> it was it was always fun. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I said, real pro. Yeah. Real Bob, pro. Uh, yeah, I loved Bob, and, and I still do. And, and anyway, let's... Uh, not not to sound uh, disrespectful, but let me let me get back to quickly to uh, to Alcatraz. Uh, you know, New okay. England. You, you do the uh, the tour with Kiss back in '79. Uh, eventually, the band disbands. I know. I think Gary went and worked with a young Vinnie Vincent at the time. Um, did you work with Vinnie Vincent as well? I can't remember. Yes. You, well, the way that went down, that real quick. Uh, New England broke up. And the three of us were in Boston. Hirsch and I and Gary were in Boston. And I called Gene Simmons looking for a guitar player. And Gene, I, I mean, literally, I just picked up the phone, called Gene. Gene goes, don't look any farther. I've got the guy. And he goes, take down this number. I wrote down the number. He goes, the guy's name's Vinny Cassano. And just call him. I, I literally hung up the phone, called Vinny. Vinny and I talked for about... 15 minutes and Vinny goes, so you guys into coming to LA? And we, and we just said, yeah. So, uh, he said, okay, I'll send you some songs, learn these songs. I don't want to be in new England. I don't want to be the replacement. No offense against new England. I, I just, you know, and I'm like, it's an opportunity. We're looking for opportunities. Sent me the songs. Hirsch and I, and Gary learned these songs with no guitar player had a marshal in the room. Vinny flew to Boston. We played the songs one afternoon and Vinny goes, done deal. Sounds great. Sound like a band. So we all got on a plane a couple of weeks later and moved to LA and started the Vinny Vincent. Well, Vinny Vincent at the time was Vinny Cassano. We started rehearsing and doing showcases and ultimately did a demo for CBS records. And that Just was, before Vinny what was that? That was warrior, right? Yes, and and yeah. that must have been a a, a fun fun experience. So, so let, let me just uh, sum that up. So so you Hirsch and Gary were considering continuing New England, and you were looking for yeah. somebody. To, okay, and so Vinny was going to be like an audition for for that, and then somewhere along the line, we went no 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 no, we're going to go do Warrior. Well, he Vinny right away said. But I'd heard, I mean, Gene was telling me, and I trust Gene. Gene said, this guy's an amazing writer, amazing singer, amazing guitar player. You're going to love him. We had toured with those with Kiss, so Gene knew New England. He knew exactly what we were about, personally and musically and everything. 
So Gene said, this is the perfect fit. He said, you gotta, you got to work with this guy. So when Vinny said, you know, I'm really not into being in New England, I'm really into doing my own thing, I, I would think about what Gene said, and Gene's no dummy. So I, based on that, I thought, you know what, we got to give this a shot and not worry about whether it's Vinny or whether it's New England. Let's just get together and play, and we'll start with Vinny's songs. And, um, and that's, it went down real quick. It was just like, okay, this guy writes and sings his ass off. So why would we be doing New England? Force this guy to do New England when he's got his own thing that's working great and we can all be part of that. And that just seemed to make a lot more sense. So that's what we did. And uh, and I'll finish on Vinny real quick, but what kind of songwriter was he? Because we always talk about Vinny being a great songwriter. Everybody says he's a pain in the ass to work with. Okay, fine. But he still has a lot of talent, plays like a mother, and, oh he, and, he's, and he God. writes great, right? So let's yeah. stay to the positive. Uh, did you notice that when he came in, were songs all done? Did you sit and write with him and go, man, this guy's got some great ideas? What was he like as a songwriter in your uh, band or in that outfit? This guy walked in with songs that were as good as anybody. This was Bon Jovi. This was, uh, this was as good as anybody. These songs were amazing. And I just heard this stuff and I thought, and I said to Hirsch and Gary probably, because Hirsch had reservations for a minute. Hirsch said, well, I wish it would be New England. You know, I wish it would be New England. He doesn't want to be New England and da da da. And I said, Hirsch, listen to this material. This is as good or better than anything John Fannin had written or, or certainly that the vibe was not good in New England. So where we were going anyway, possibly would not have been very good. We had some really good material, which is coming out now some songs that we had written, but Vinny, Vinny was incredible uh, and a great singer, uh, which is too bad that he never pursued that. He always had to have Robert Flashman or Fergie Ferguson, you know, whatever. And um, so we, I just heard those songs and I just thought, I'm on board with this. I don't need to be New England. This is, this is rocking. I really believed in Vinny's material and his voice. So, and then so did Gary, and then Hirsch came around, and then we all just said, yeah, let's go to L.A., and let's do this. So, I knew I was moving to L.A. I wasn't going to L.A. to see if it worked or not, because I wanted out of Boston. I like Boston. I love Boston, but um, musically, there was nothing there for me. So, I was ready for a change, and having been to L.A., we'd done a record out here and stuff, I thought, yeah, this is where I want to live. So... I was gone. It, it's a lot nicer yeah. in February in L.A., let me, tell, let me tell you. Yeah, you know, and I hated the weather in L.A., uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm, I live in Chicago now. I just moved to Chicago about four months ago, and I love the weather here. And everybody says, oh, Chicago, you're going to hate that. I've been coming here for years. My wife is from here. So I've been coming here for years, and I've always loved it out here. So uh, I like cold weather. I don't like hot weather. I don't like the Southwest. I like, uh, I just like cold weather. I like snow. 
I mean, call well, me crazy. But listen, I'd love I'm in Boston Montreal and I should be agreeing with you, but no, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big uh, I, fan. I know. <laughs> I know. Everywhere I've ever toured in Canada, that's the first thing people say is, oh, man, you're from Boston. It's so nice down there. It, they, to, to people in Edmonton, Boston was nice. You yeah. know what I mean? To people in Edmonton, yeah, Boston like, is tropical. Yes. That's exactly. A, that, that's kind exactly. of fun. And, and we played a hockey rink in uh, Edmonton, I think, where the, uh, the Oilers, right? Edmonton yeah, Oilers. The, the Edmonton Oilers. Team? Yeah, but nobody needs to know. So, All you need to know is Montreal Canadiens. Everything else you can just ignore. Well, exactly. So just ignore. Exactly. Well, easy. I don't. I'm not. <laughs> so we played that hockey rink. We got snowed in. Our Winnebago was three quarters of the way under snow when we came out of that that show it was there were there were not snow plows there were major equipment out there moving snow out of the parking lot so that the trucks because the tractor trailers were snowed in i mean it was crazy <laughs> so uh but i love it i like i said i'm just crazy i mean we tour overseas in the winter in the uk and germany and stuff and i love it so you you I mean, love you love cold rainy days, but let 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 as we I get do. to half an yeah. hour here, let let's wrap up on Alcatraz real quick. But sure, what what are the plans? Because okay, and and I know in every interview you're going people are going to say it's been thirty four years. Oh my god! Oh yes, yes, we know. But where do we go in the future? Is it is there like a plan where in you know two years you're going to need a new album and we're going to tour it and we're going to do this and we're not going to do michael schenker and we're not going to do graham bonnet band and we're not going to do all the other stuff we've been doing we're just going to focus on alcatraz and give ourselves five years of this is the plan let's execute uh the plan is this we're writing right joe stump and i are writing right now for this for a new record um i'm going to go to boston in probably a month and Joe and I are going to record the demos. Joe and I are going to at his house where he's got Marshalls and we can record real guitars. So we'll do a drum machine, but, but heavy guitars and I'll have keyboards with me. We're writing now for that. The plan is to write. And when we finish that stuff, things will hopefully be settled down and we'll be able to go out and tour. Um, Cause there's tours, book that have been rescheduled um and that's the plan and the plan is we will see what happens when we're ready to tour as far as who dictate i'll tell you who dictates some of the material we play is the promoters and the club owners and the venue owners because they'll say you guys have to play desert song and all night long or since you've been gone and night games or, you know, they dictate that. And if we said, no, we're not going to play that stuff anymore. Then it's, we're off to a bad start with that promoter. So we have to play some of that. We have anyway, had to play some of that material and live. We just had to, and we play it. And I see the reaction that people love it. And you would think, wow, we play some real heavy stuff. And then you would think, Oh God, we're going to play night games. These people are going to freak out and hate it. And we play it and people love it because they're familiar with the song. It was a hit for them, you know, or whatever. Since you've been gone, same thing. That doesn't get any poppier than that, but people love it. So that's part of our, part of our repertoire, you know, our sales, what people love that sells tickets or, or some of the songs. So 
going out this, this next time, we'll have a lot of new material to pick from because we'll have all the material on this record that hasn't even hit the streets yet. And then we'll have new material off a new record that will be, you know, not done maybe, but certainly well on the way. So we'll have a lot of new material to pick from. It just remains to be seen what the, what the vibe is like out there. I don't know what people are going to do. I mean, when I say people, I mean promoters and agencies. What are they going to, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but we well, could end listen, up playing. It's, it's going to be real tough because what folks seem to, to maybe miss about this whole, well, our concert's going to come back, it's like, yeah, you know what? The Staples Center in L.A. and the, and the Bell Center in Montreal and all these arena acts, the U2s and Matanas, they'll just put tickets on sale and they'll be fine. But a lot of the smaller bands that are playing clubs and theaters, they might have yeah. nowhere to go because those clubs and those theaters may not exist in six months from now. So it's going to be a whole yeah. new landscape and it might be a very uh, deserted landscape. So, Plus, I mean, let's just take a 3,000-seater. So, okay, we're going to play a 3,000-seater in Montreal, whatever. And they go, yeah, well, social distancing, so really the 3,000-seater just turned into a 1,000-seater. And you go, well, okay, 1,000 people, that'll be cool. And then the promoter goes, well, but I can't make any money if I can only sell 1,000 seats because the venue costs X money because i got to keep people apart. So I can't put more than 1,000 people in a venue that costs as much as a 3,000 seater to rent and, you know, insurance and yes. personnel and all that. And, and all production. the while, your travel visas, your, your airline tickets, your bus rentals, none of that is a third off or two thirds off. So, no, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, already that's, playing, and that's the problem. Players are back up there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And certainly we think about that. And, uh, I, I'm, I just kind of close my eyes and write music and do music and, and go, well, you know what? There's nothing I can do about it. And that's kind of where I'm at these days about everybody doing all these conspiracy theories about, you know, all these things about why this happened. And I go, that's fine. What can we do about it? Nothing. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to be a musician. I don't want to be a FBI agent or a whatever. And I don't want to be a concert promoter. I don't want to be the guy that comes in and tries to solve the concert promoter's problems. I'm going to do my job and whatever happens, happens. Because I know the promoters are going to want to do it. Club owners want to do it. Venue owners want to do it. It'll just be a matter of, can you put, can you fill a venue safely? And are you going to be allowed to and all this stuff? So Boy, I don't know. And, I'm and, just going to keep writing music and not worrying about it. Yeah, and that's the smart thing to do. And, and I'll finish on this because it, the puzzle is people say, well, okay, you put a thousand people in. Well, then charge double the ticket prices and, and make it a special exclusive. You're like, yeah, but the people that yeah. have to pay double the prices haven't worked for six months. So you can't. No, not so, going to happen. Yeah, nope. so it's, 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 it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, and it's a lot of damned if you, da damned if you do. So it's, it's, it's a weird time. But anyway, on that. You're, uh, yeah. you're exactly right. Let's just remind folks People that born in... pay double. Yeah. They're not. They're not. Not because they don't necessarily <laughs> want to. I, I would love to pay double the price to go see whatever, Alcatraz, Kiss, whoever. Problem is, is that for six months, we've not been getting our full pay and it's not, you know, 
the kids come first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no yeah, well, exactly yes. right. It's reality. It's like I'm the same person. I can't like I wanted to go see the Who in Vegas uh, a couple of years ago. And uh my wife and I were like we lived in LA at the time, so we thought, Oh man, we're gonna jump in the car, we're gonna go to Vegas and see the Who, spend the night, da da da. And the tickets were the best I could do for tickets would have cost us about five hundred dollars. And that was then and I, we couldn't afford it. I said, well, we can't afford to go 500 bucks for the tickets plus 300 bucks for whatever, 400 bucks. So, uh, no, not going to happen. So not we didn't go happen. then. So imagine people, like you said, oh, you're going to go see Alcatraz and, uh, whoever, and it's going to cost you $150, not $50. Well, people are going to go, well, uh, I just can't do that. Yeah, and, and, and the Who were my favorite band in the world, but I there's no way I didn't have that kind of money, <laughs> you know, laying around, and I could just go, well, yeah, so what? We spend a thousand bucks a week, eh, so what? I couldn't do it. <laughs> thousand bucks for for a show. anyway. Uh, on that, Born yeah. Innocent comes out at the end of uh, July. This first album in 34 years, believe it or not. Um, very excited. The the tracks that have been made available to the public because I've I've actually had a stream of the whole thing, but but London one. London one six 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 and and the other one uh, polar uh, polar bear polar bear yeah great stuff and I and I have to say when I uh, went to see the videos for the first time you know I was like well what do I expect here and you know everybody's a little bit older and you know, well and uh, especially London it, it just hits you right between the eyes and you go oh okay they're not doing uh, they're not doing soft rock for the older folks they're they're still doing the metal okay I'm de- great stuff just great oh, yeah. stuff. And, uh, I feel people ask me about that and I go, I don't know. I feel when I walk, I get in front of a keyboard. I don't, I don't feel any different than I always did. My tastes, if anything, have gotten a little heavier, uh, where I like it even heavier. And I've, I've dissected some stuff and looked at how these bands make records over the last 10 or 15 years. And I go, Oh, this is really cool the way they're doing this. So I see what he's doing. And you know, from the kick drum sounds to guitars to whatever amps, I'm all really into gear and all that shit. So yeah, I feel the same. So heavy to me is just, that's just what I've always done and what I love doing. And and it's what I love listening to. I mean, I I know some of my friends, you know, they, they go, Oh, I used to love Judas priest, but now I listen to, and it's like, why can't you still love Judas priest? Why was there other stuff? Why was there an expiration date? Music. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've done, I've done, I did a world music project, which two albums, three albums, and I toured, well, we went to other countries to do that. And that was, uh, I had a blast doing that, knowing the whole time that that was in between, didn't have anything else going at the time. And we, we did it was really good money and the record sold really well. And it was fun to do. I did it with a guy I love and all that. That's great. But, but my heart is always right here. <laughs> you know, uh, always has been this kind of music to me. And I, I've suffered for it in, in the beginning because I was so stubborn. I was in bands that was, well, New England was really stubborn. We wanted to play more musical, heavier stuff. And we played our own music and we couldn't get gigs. And we got fired from clubs. We'd play one week and they'd never have us back because we'd jam and we'd go off on these long jams and playing rearranged versions of uh, Ten My Garden by Joe Walsh and all this crazy stuff. And people go, what is that? We want you to play the hits off the radio. You know, play Stairway to Heaven, play whatever. And um, 
So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, on that, Jimmy, uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being the first band I ever saw perform because here we are. Uh, let's do the math. Uh, 41 years later. Is that the right math? 41 yeah, years later. Like that. <laughs> still love rock and roll. Still love going to shows. And I'm just saying, if it had not been for that first night, had that first night been a complete disaster, maybe I wouldn't be doing this today. So so thank you for putting me on the right path by delivering oh, a great show gosh. with Kiss. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm sure you'd have been on the path anyway. I'm sure you'd have seen a show the next week or something and it put you on the path. So that's great. That's really great. I'm honored to have been the first band that you ever first saw. First band, that's, that's right. cool. Very cool. To talk to the guy that says that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I've met a few people, uh, but they're not in the business. So it's, it's interesting that you, you've been in the business as long as I have. At this point, so. well, in a sense, because I did my right. first interview with Gene Simmons on June 9th, 1980, at the age of 11. So I've actually been doing this for 40 years. So there you yeah, go. There you go. There That's you go. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Let me just hang up here on the interview, and I just want to say one last thing uh, off the record here. Hold okay. On. So, on that, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup, and uh, hold on for a second. 